it in there. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Just kind of hold your place there and then we'll, we'll kind of dive in. We're only covering, covering a few verses uh, this evening. As we're going to do more of an intro, try to set it up and give just a little bit of, of understanding. Now, what comes to mind when the book of Revelation is mentioned? It brings up a lot of different thoughts, right? There's uh, ten-headed dragons and and all kinds of crazy creatures, and, and it's just uh, this kind of bizarre, bizarre book. Some of the words that it might evoke, uh, you might think of rapture, right? Or you might think antichrist. Did you know the book of Revelation does not have the word antichrist in it? Did you know that rapture is not in the book of Revelation, right? But if you thought about it, that would be the two things that come to mind, right? So I want to take another look at it because there's elements of those things there. Don't get me wrong. But there's also another thing, right? Because Revelation was always presented to me as a book just to scare the bejesus out of you, right? And to get you right with the Lord, right? Like, if you don't get it right, man, look what you're going to have to go through. But the book of Revelation wasn't written for that. It was written to a persecuted church to know that in the end they win, right? So we don't have to be afraid of this book or, you know, or, or treat it in that way. This book is a book to believers of all generations of all time to understand what it is to be persecuted, what it is to stand strong under that persecution, and what it is to know in your mind that God's already won the battle, right? I heard a story as a, a group of seminary students and they were studying the book of Revelation and they got really discouraged because it was just it wasn't making any sense. So they went and went into a gym and started shooting hoops and the janitor was in there pushing a broom, cleaning up. And they asked, and so he said, man, why are you guys so down? The janitor did and to, the, to the people playing basketball and they said, man, we're just, we're just baffled by the book of Revelation. He said, oh, that's nothing. And he just kept pushing his broom. They said, oh, wait on a second here. Well, what do you mean it's nothing? Oh, that's an easy book to understand. And they're like, well, well, then explain it to us. And he said, here's the end. Uh, we win. And then he kept on pushing the room. So don't miss the force for the trees. Get the grand message. The grand theme is, um, is that we win. Is that, is that we win. Now, now, some of the words that might not come to your mind when I mention this that is more prevalent than the words that I mentioned earlier is this. Witnesses, thrones, and God viewed as a lamb. So strange kind of themes here that, that, that he's weaving through. But these are, these are central to the book of Revelation. And as we work through it, we'll, we'll talk about these. Um, we'll, we'll talk about these. And so, so some things, uh, you know, so you just don't need to be scared or, or be confused. Uh, there is some things that, that do get out there pretty good, but we're going to do our best to try to find, uh, to find them and not make it so perplexing. And really, we named the series Rescuing Revelation, not because it needs saving, but so that maybe we can see it as a book in our life that is actually really practical and actually really life-giving and strengthening in a lot of different ways. Um, you, here's what Martin Luther said about, uh, said about the book of Revelation. Because this has been, throughout history, it's caused some controversy. So Mar here's what Martin Luther said, uh, the guy that founded the Reformation. Uh, neither, the book is neither apostolic nor prophetic, 
I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep this book, what is written in this book, yet no one knows what it is to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Isn't that odd? He thought it shouldn't even have been part of the canon. He thought that was a mistake when they, when they put it together. And we got to admit, stepping into Revelation, it, it can get bizarre. It's kind of a, uh, almost seems like a Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings kind of deal. Uh, kind of starts showing up. And, uh, but there's some things, things that we need to know. Number one, you need to get out of your mind. I'm going to try to help you with this, and this is something that helped me. Um, quit worrying about when. Right? We always want to ask when, right? And this has been the church's question for a long time. In the book of Acts, when Jesus, he, he, he's died on the cross, he's risen from the dead, and he's teaching for 40 days before he ascends into heaven. The book of Acts in chapter 1, you know what they asked him? When will we know when is the sign of your coming? When will we know when you're going to set up your kingdom on the earth? What do they want to know? When? You know what Jesus says? It's not for you to know the seasons and times fixed by the Father who is in heaven. What God wants us to do is not so much worry about when, but worry more about who. Think if you knew everything when it was going to happen. How would you live your life? Right? Isn't that weird? Think if you knew the day you were going to die. Would that not be terrifying? Or am I just alone here? Does anybody else think that's... Like, you would be like... You would just be freaked out to live your life. Like, there's something freeing about not having to know and enter into mystery... And to be able to love God and embrace God and be watchful and to know and know the signs and know the times and, and get all that. But there's something freeing about being able to enter into a place to where you're not concerned with the mysteries of the universe, but yet you are engaged in worship with God and you're living every day faithfully uh, unto Him. So the Bible kind of wants us to get a different view of time, right? So, so like uh, Psalms 90 verse 4 would say something like this. A day in heaven is as, and a thousand years is as a day. Then Peter echoes this language in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 when people are mocking about the coming of the Lord. Say, so, well, is he ever going to come? Is he going to come? And, and Peter's like saying, well, he echoes that same thing in, verse three, in chapter 3 verse 8. He says, a day in heaven is as a thousand years. A thousand years or as a day. So what's Peter saying? God's on a different timetable than what we are on. Okay? God doesn't wear a wristwatch. Okay? Right? Like, like we, have, we do that because we're keeping appointments and we're trying to stay on time and, and keep, keep things punctual. But God is operating by a different set of, a different timeline, a different set of, of standards. And so, so we need to stop. Okay? So just stop in your tracks and begin to take a different mindset when you approach the book of Revelation. Instead of immediately going to the place where we read this book and try to figure out which symbol is what person for the context in which we're living right now, 
we stop, get an understanding of the historical context of the Bible and of this book in specific, uh, specifically, get an understanding of what the first century readers would have thought when they received this book. The book of Revelation is the only book that we try to read differently than every other book of the Bible, right? Like we think that when John wrote it, John wrote it to then say, the only people that's going to tell you how to understand this book are going to be Americans 2,000 years later. But don't worry, the Americans are coming to explain it to you and write a whole series of books to help you get this. They understood what each and every symbol meant. Right? They understood better than us what this book meant. So when John wrote this and passed it around, the first century church wasn't baffled. They understood the symbols. They understood what things were meaning. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't have future bearing. This has great bearing on the future. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that when we get an understanding of what these symbols actually meant, then we can look in our day and say, ah, that's where that fits. That's where that fits. That's where that fits. And that makes sense here and there. And so, so John is talking uh, uh, to some people that would have understood uh, this letter uh, that kind of seems like it's maybe uh, in code. At times, and so, so when you got a persecuted church, you got to talk in code, right? You go to an underground church, you better have a code of language of where to meet, how to get there, what means what, right? So when you have a persecuted church, they're they're writing in code, they're writing in a different different way. So so that's that's part of it here. So so what is the theological meanings here that that we're going to get from the Book of Revelation? Uh, well, it means this. What does it look like to have Christ as the sovereign king of the universe, yet other people are always opposing him? And how does a church that believes he is the sovereign king of the universe react when it looks like he's not because the world is opposing him all the time? And how does the church live as a countercultural reality amidst the persecution of each and every age? That the book of Revelation is more about worship and how to walk through persecution than literally just about anything else. So what John is trying to do with writing this book is he's trying to give us theology, but good theology always brings us to doxology, and that's a place of worship, right? Anytime you learn something about God, it should draw you into worship. It should draw you into obedience and submission. And so that's what the book of Revelation is really, really about, is that John is really trying to draw us into worship. The book has got worship laden all the way, all the way through it. Now, John's Revelation, he's purposely set out to write something that has not been done before. Within the book of Revelation, especially when you get to chapter 6 and on, it starts getting out there pretty good, right? First three chapters we get, right? Letters to churches, yeah, we get that. Those are like epistles. 
But then in chapter 6, there's this strange shifting that takes place. Very strange. So John, in this letter, there's three types of different genres of prophetic literature and, and, and biblical genres of literature within this work. There's a certain genre of literature. It's called the apocalypsis or the, uh, the apocalyptic literature that was, became really popular din, during what was called uh, the quenching of the spirit or the quiet times, right? The book of the Old Testament ends with Malachi, right? And then there's like 400 years of silence, right? They called this period the period where people weren't hearing God's voice anymore. It's like the prophetic stopped. So a certain genre of literature began to raise up. And this genre was, was much like what's in chapter 6 and on, where you have uh, dragons and a beast coming out of the sea, like in chapter 13, and, and all these different things. That these, this work was written in a way to be shocking, to be alarming, to be, uh, to, to be very vivid with creatures and beasts. And so, so John enters into this, this uh, certain kind of literature. Uh, also within it is a prophetic literature that gives us a view for the future of the coming of Christ. So there's like this prophetic sense in it. There is this apocalyptic, like, end of the world kind of sense to where the powers that would oppose Christ come down, and those power structures would bow at his feet. And then there's epistles in it. There's, three, there's seven letters to, to seven different churches. So we have epistles mixed in with this apocalyptic literature, mixed in with a prophetic declaration. Now, that's important because this right here. During this period, they called it actually the quenched spirit period where the prophetic movement kind of had stopped where you know you didn't have Isaiah's and Ezekiel's stepping up and really speaking for God anymore what is unique about when John starts to write this gospel he says I was in the spirit on the Lord's day so John is saying we've entered into a new era where the Spirit of God is not quenched, but is available and is speaking through His people and is available throughout every church age that would exist. Another key feature of this apocalyptic literature was always to say, seal this up until the time that it happens. Right? Seal this up. Don't open this up until the time is right. And they would usually attach somebody popular biblical character's name to it and act as if they had said it. The book of Revelation, John is told, don't seal up this book. John brings the reality into his day and says, this isn't for some far off day. This is for you today right now. Engage in this story of Jesus Christ subduing the nations and putting all people under His feet and becoming the centerpiece of history. So John isn't holding us at a distance and saying, don't get into this book. John's pulling us very near and saying, engage with these Scriptures. Engage in this book. This is not a book for the super elite. This isn't a book for only Perry Stone. Sorry, Perry, you're probably not watching anyway. This is a book for the church to worship and to know the Lord 
in a greater measure and in a greater way. Uh, so there's three kinds of genres going on here. And so we've got to figure out when John is switching into this one mode and when he's switching out of it into another. And so there's some different things uh, that we need to be aware of uh, as we're reading it. Now, John's not simply anticipating the end. He's not simply anticipating the end. He's basically, uh, as were his Jewish predecessors and contemporaries, rather he sees the end as having started with the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. So in other words, with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the last days started right then. The last days didn't start two weeks ago. The last days started when Jesus Christ defeated sin, death, and the grave, and then rose up from the dead and called us into that reality to walk with Him. That that was the end. The end of what? The end of this sinful age that we are in right now. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, it was like Jesus Christ put a flag on earth and says, this is mine, and the process has started of full redemption to bring everything back the way it's supposed to be. So John is pulling us, not saying the end is far, or it's way off. He's saying... It's near. It's near. It's present. It's here. It's already been signed, right? So we're caught up in a battle that we've already won. We've already won. We're caught up in a battle that God has already won. So our part of it is not fighting for victory, it's fighting from victory. So we are enduring the hostility how can we endure it endure it we know we've already won so we can endure these things and endure persecution because really none of that really matters because when i die i'll be raised with him and i'll be present with jesus and so if he's the centerpiece and the treasure of your life what can anybody really do to you why was the first century church giving their body to be thrown into the lion's den and getting their heads lopped off and all kinds of crazy stuff. Why? Because they understood death wasn't the end of the story. That the end of the story is Jesus and he's already wrote the end of the story. It's all over. It's in him. That every unfaithful human being that ever walked in the earth, their sins were placed upon his body and he paid for the, their sin debt. So that anybody in him is forgiven, saved, and can go on into the end no matter what, knowing that they win. And so that is, uh, that's encouraging. So there's a prophetic tone to this too, if you notice when we get into the book. There's a lot about, uh, the prophets really had two messages if we boiled it down. You ready? Flee from immorality and flee from idolatry. Right? Like, quit worshiping idols and quit doing bad things. And we'll get the favor of God. Right? So there's this prophetic cry within that. Within this apocalyptic, God's got all this worked out. There's a war going on in the heavenlies. And that's hard for a Western mindset. Right? We want to rationally think through everything. 
You know what the ancient mind thought? The ancient mind thought there was a secret spiritual battle going on all the time. And I'm not sure that they're not right. <laughs> right? Like art and intellectualism might not be serving us as well as we think. And so there's a prophetic element, flee idolatry, flee immorality, and then there is that apocalyptic element, and then also an epistle element. So who wrote this? Uh, the Apostle John, John wrote, wrote this book, and he's the same guy that authored the Gospels, and 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, all those attributed to, to him uh, as well. Something interesting that I learned today is that John... Uh, I, think it's, I think the reference is John 19, 25. But um, I believe it reads to where Mary, the mother of Jesus, sister was John's mother. So that would make him a cousin to Jesus. So he was probably near around Jesus more than anybody else. Which makes some sense, right? Because he's like leaning in on Jesus at the meals. He, he's always in this kind of tender place, Right? Uh, it even creates some dissension and jealousy because remember when Peter is restored in John 21 and he's like, Peter, you're going to get stretched out and <laughs> taken to places you don't want to go, basically saying, uh, crucifixion's going to be your lot. And he says what? What about him? And Jesus says, what's it to you if he lives and never dies until I come? So we can see here there's some kind of dynamic here to where John is, is close. Now John's writing these, he's writing his Gospels in about the 90s A.D. And by this time, he's be an old man, maybe close to his 90s, right? He writes his Gospel and the book of Revelation probably around his 90s. So that's why his Gospel looks so much different. His Gospel's written from the perspective of a man at the end of his life that has tasted and seen the depths and the riches of God. Right, whereas the other gospels were written much sooner to give an account. So the Gospel of Mark, it's kind of there's no genealogies; it just gets right to business. Right? It's like the it's like Mulan. Let's get down to business. Um, not many millennials in here. I probably shouldn't. Yikes. Um, because that was written for the Roman mindset. The Roman mindset was on the go. Let's go. Give it to me. Don't give me all the extras. I just need the meat and the potatoes. So give me. That's why the Gospel of Mark is just so much shorter. Gospel of Luke written to really show Jesus' humanity. And that was written by a man by the name of Luke who had, was kind of going around gathering facts and clues and eyewitnesses. Really wordy. You know, there's more words in the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke than in the entire rest of the New Testament. A Gentile's got more words in the New Testament than anybody else. Isn't that odd? Really strange. And then we got Matthew was written to the Jews. So genealogies are really important for them. They got to know who this guy Jesus is and does he line up with the prophecy of who he was, who he said he was. But then you got John. It's not even in chronological order. It's all over the place. But it's in John where we really get to see Jesus' heart. The other Gospels show the body of Jesus. John Calvin said the Gospel of John shows his heart. So we get this window, this insight to this aging man who's been exiled to prison in an island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. 
So can you imagine being in your 90s and you get outcast? The, the thought is, is that this was Emperor Domitian and he had an intense, it was brief, but it was an intense empire-wide persecution of Christians. And so what he had learned is, is that the martyr hero thing really didn't work. It actually pushed the gospel forward. So what he did with John was, he didn't want to create a martyr hero, so he created a fake charge on him, trumped up charge, convict him of a crime where he would lose credibility and fame, and then banishes him into the Isle of Patmos. And so it's on this island where he has been banished that he writes this book of Revelation. So it gives us a greater understanding why is that? Because you know what? John probably felt like a flea right then. He probably felt like the smallest entity in the world. Here he is in his 90s. He's done the right thing. He's been faithful. And then here he is at the last stage of his life, and he is in prison, banished in exile. And if anybody had a reason to get a little bit discouraged... John, he could have said, man, look what it's like here. I've been banished. I've done nothing but be faithful. And here towards the end of my life when I should be kicking up my feet, thinking about retirement, exiled for yet another persecution for Jesus. John might have felt like a real small, powerless entity. But it was in that place that God reveals to him, John, I got this thing under control. I've got this thing under control. Don't even sweat it. And a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a vision that you're going to show everybody else in this place of persecution that's going to empower a generation to hold their chest up and to hold their head up high and know that God has still got the battle under control and that we are going to win. And so Revelation's kind of a different kind of book. The, the Greek word for love, agape, or the noun agape and the verb agapeo uh, is used like 44 different times in John's gospel. In Revelation, it's used like six so it's, it's kind of different. It's a different tone that John has with this, this book. Believe is like mentioned 98 times in John's other works. Pisteo, the verb to believe into. And in Revelation, believe is mentioned zero times. It seems odd. It's written with a really rugged style of Greek too. So it's written completely different than John's other works. The reason being is that what John is trying to accomplish with the book of Revelation is completely different than what he's trying to accomplish with his gospel. With his gospel, he's trying to be evangelistic. He's trying to tell you, you need to believe. He's saying God is love. You need to walk in love because God's love. And you need to love your... He's talking in these kind of forms. He's persuading. He's bringing people into relationship with Jesus. And the book of Revelation wasn't so much about an evangelistic effort. 
as much as it was to remind a persecuted church that God's got everything under control. So he's in a different kind of thing here. Now, why the different kind of rugged style in which he writes it? Well, while he's in Patmos in prison, what they would use to write these books was called an amanuensis. They would use a secretary who would jot this stuff down. So they would, there was these people that were professionals. You basically told them what you wanted, and they crafted it in just beautiful ways. It was what they did. Well, when John's in Patmos in prison... Guess what? Guess who's writing this letter? Him. As he's seeing it. Can you imagine seeing this crazy stuff and having to write it down? Right? So it's rugged because one, he's in his 90s. He's losing his mind. He's seeing things. And he's trying to describe the indescribable. Give him a break. Give him a break. He did a good job. But there are some similar John things in there. He uses the logos of the word. And he uses the Lamb of God. The only one to use that designation was John. And all through the scriptures. One time God is mentioned as a lion. The rest of the time. Almost 26 or 29 different times. It's the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Now what's going with that Lamb lingo? Well, it's a path or a track for a persecuting church. Because here's the irony. The greatest empire that has ever existed gets taken down by a lamb. So it's irony. It's humor. They say, wow, a murdered Jew in his 30s takes down the most powerful army and empire that has ever existed. So if we take on the lamb motif, no matter what happens to us, if we do the right thing, follow the Lord, guess what happens? Justice. God goes to battle for those who walk in this way. So next time your boss gets sideways with you, it was a lamb that defeated the world. So you take it. Why? Because you've already won anyway. Might as well give God a little glory along the way. Amen. Right? Yeah. That is pretty good. Thank you, Lord, for making this so good. There's also another kind of factor that was, that was bleeding in here. The core of Jewishness was family, lineage, blood. What tribe are you from? And so when these Jews were converting into Christianity, it was like their family was being cut off from them. Because the majority of the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the guy. Religious systems and the things in place? No. So as these Jews were coming into Christianity, they were leaving behind blood relatives. That's tough. That's tough. 
So the center place, the place to meet, would have been like a church or a synagogue. So here they were, able to join the synagogue, but around this time, there was a, a mandate passed down to all the different synagogues, and it was this 19th prayer that was instituted, which pronounced a curse on Christians and banned all Christians from entering the synagogue. So not only did it feel like government and empire was against them, there was family falling away too. A low spot. Low spot. And we've seen it on some level, right? You give your life to the Lord and people don't understand and just kind of, you know, it's like, man, I thought, lonely place. So John's in this place. So if anybody needed a word of encouragement, it was John, man. So God says, you know what? I'm about to give him a word of encouragement. So that's what Revelation's all about. It's to people that are suffering, people that are persecuted. It's a prophetic declaration on how we ought to live and be faithful no matter how much pressure comes in on the side of us. Because let's face it, pressures come in to throw us off course all the time. All the time. So the book of Revelations calls us back to being faithful. It, it, it really is Jesus really bearing his soul, saying you don't want to miss out on what this ending's going to be. So it's a declaration that we would be faithful, but it's also a reminder that, that we're going to win. We're going to win. So we're just going to cover three verses real quick. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some would say the revelation from Jesus Christ. Who's got from? Who's got of? Hmm. We can address that if y'all, well, got three minutes. Y'all want to address it? Okay. Like I said, the Greek is rugged. They put the article adjective in there in the English, which put the the. That's not in the original manuscript. The manuscript is Revelation, Jesus Christ. So from based on the next statement, the translators considered that in order to help them to understand the first, the first one. Probably the better understanding would be the revelation from Jesus Christ, not of. Um, so this would be a time where the NIV gets it. Okay. Um, my version says of. It's the, it's the ESV. Um, because it starts out here with, it's tricky, because it starts out here with three different pronouns. Okay, And you, you can see them here. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So there's a lot of he, a lot of his, a lot of this, a lot of that. So it's like, which one is it referring to here? With God being the antecedent, we could probably say this in the very last statement there, last sentence in the first verse. He, being God, made it known by sending his angel 
Jesus to Jesus' servant, who is John. So, basically like this. God made it known to Jesus, who made it known to his servant John. So then they would go to the first sentence and translate it this way, given that case, the revelation from Jesus Christ. So it's, it's really a non-issue there, but if you're a Bible nerd, it, it kind of gets the fires going there, okay? Yeah, okay. Verse 2. Hey, y'all wanted to get into it. Verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw? Now get this. This is cool. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Wow. So again, that weird time thing where John's saying, it's near. Well, it's 2,000 years ago. God's not on your watch. If you hadn't figured that out already, but geez. Right? I mean, that's obvious. God has really got his own time schedule going on that he wants me to get my head around and just be okay with. So the last days would begin at Pentecost and would, in reality with Jesus. But this is the only book that explicitly says who reads this aloud and hears it gets a blessing. And what's the one book we don't really want to dive into? Maybe the devil's trying to keep us away from a real blessing. I don't know. So get ready to get blessed because this is what it says. Blessed is the one who reads it aloud. Now why, why is it read it aloud? Well, Back in those days, the literacy rate was about 15% in the Roman Empire. So you found a guy that could read, and that was like TV. I'm serious. Y'all are laughing. You said, Man, you can read? Hold on, I'm going to grab a scroll. And he's like, oh, I should have never told him I could read. So the idea is that you have very few people that can read, and those that can, they're reading aloud. So it becomes a real culture of hearing and doing. Hearing and doing. Hearing and doing. And it would take place in the context of community. Because not everybody could go alone in their room and read. So it was a, something that would bring people together. And blessed are those people that, that get uh, that got to hear and, and, and got to be a part of that. So, well, that wasn't bad. Uh, wasn't bad. So this is a setup. We're going to dive into the text, okay? I had somebody tell me the other day, they said, man, you, you talk forever, and I wrote a note that said, you need to use Scripture, and then you finally got to your Scripture, so I had to tear it up, and I couldn't give it to you. So, um, I don't know. So there's long, I have long intros. Let's just put it that way. And... God is good. He's awesome. Yeah. And uh, let's, just, let's just stand to our feet. I'm just going to pray.